Hi, I'm Shauna Letker. And I'm Mario Antiveros. I'm an artist and executive director of the nonprofit publisher of Extra. I'm an art historian in the Department of Art at Cal State University Northridge and an editor at Extra. Together, we've been working on this podcast, Extra's Artists and Rights. And we're so excited to finally introduce it to you today. Yeah, it's been about two years in the making, and it's a conversation series exploring what art can do at the intersection of Los Angeles's most urgent issues and artistic practice. Each session brings together a group of artists around a table. They share the strategies for reaching across the boundaries of their disciplines, how they build bridges, how they work collectively, and how they create supportive conditions and opportunities. Our first episode is titled Living a Life While Decolonizing the Mind and features Monte, Todd Gray, Galari Kushkozaran, and Jennifer Moon. We want you to know that this session was recorded back in December 2019. It's only been six months, but it feels like a day less than eternity. But this conversation remains relevant. It might even be more relevant now. The pandemic, the protests, the failures of the government, the police violence, all of this has shed more light on the intersection of inequity, systemic racism, and injustice that compels the work of these artists. I keep thinking about when Now Bustamante said, for the revolution, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. That resonates differently now, but is still really powerful. And people were ready. Yeah, and, and now as we work to carry forward this momentum of the Black Lives Matter movement towards ending white supremacy and defunding the police, I mean, the artists might not address this directly in their talk, but they do lay out strategies for affecting this kind of long-term change into the future. And when we were in the recording studio together, there were so many moments when I almost said, hold it, I need to write that down. Yeah, it was also interesting to me that the theme for this group was making a living, and that led them to a deep discussion about the challenges of sustaining a creative life. And they also talk about ways to build communities and supportive relationships, which I find so incredibly useful mm. now. There's just so much to learn from this group, and it was really magical to bring them together. Yeah, we hope that you find this episode as inspiring today as we do. You can find more information about the series, the artists, and their work on Extra's website at extraonline.org. We can just do a brief introduction. Hi, I'm Todd Gray. I'm an artist from Los Angeles, a retired professor from Cal State Long Beach, and I've been making work for 40 years, so I'm quite interested in entering this conversation. I'm now Bustamante. I'm Artist, performance, video, sculpture, primarily writing and some a few other sundry things. And I'm also a professor and director of an MFA program at USC Ruski. And I'm happy to be here with all of you. I'm Gelare Khoshkozaran. I'm an artist and writer. I've been living and working in LA for 10 years. I'm an adjunct at UCLA. Hi, I'm Jennifer Moon. And I guess I'm an artist, life artist maybe. And I just started teaching my very first semester as an assistant professor at Otis. So yeah, really interested in pedagogy. And I'm Mario Antiveros. Um, I'm a professor of art history um, at Cal State University Northridge at CSUN. I'm also on the editorial board at Extra and, uh, and also a curator. We started um, this conversation via email, essentially, and one of the sort of framing questions that we uh, sent out was, um, what's most urgent for you today? 
in terms of your practice? And how does that urgency connect to the ways of making a living? And I was wondering if anyone had any initial parts about those urgencies and how they relate I, I to your practice. I wrote all my answers down. I love it. <laughs> oh, you want me to go? I think that's a perfect okay. start. Okay, <clears throat> what's urgent for me? Oh, I'm Jennifer. This is Jennifer talking. Um, uh, well, it's a larger project, like the revolution, which is like a larger project of mine, which is basically kind of like attempting to expand beyond what I call the 5%, expanding beyond binaries, um, hierarchies, and capital. But in order to do that, like, then we have to provide for everyone's like survival needs um, within the 5%. So trying to find ways to provide for people's uh, uh, like food, free food, clothing, shelter, healthcare. But in order to do that, like, I feel like we also have to acknowledge and like befriend trauma and like the ways in which people's needs aren't being met. Um, so that's like kind of... But in order to do that... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this could be an endless, but in order to do that then, kind of thing, yeah, you know, in order to, so are you currently, in, this is now asking Jennifer questions, so are you currently in the space of um, identifying or making friends with trauma? Yeah, yeah, I think I have been for a while, but like an interesting thing about like teaching is like I'm trying to bring that into the classroom and it hasn't always worked out super well. Um, and it's been very humbling because I'm like a lot of people, uh, I mean, not maybe not a lot of people, but like talking about feelings and talking about shame and trauma is not something that's like a lot of people are used to. We don't have like training in that. We've never, like we don't have a class about like these are feelings and this is what you do with feelings or how do you feel your feelings. So as I've run up to like kind of conflicts with uh, students um, because it's hard talk mm -hmm. about trauma and uh, not everyone wants to talk about trauma mm -hmm. so I'm trying to like figure out how to like smuggle that in mm -hmm. in a way that's like uh, consensual and also like mm -hmm. that's generative somehow for the mm -hmm. students mm -hmm. yeah. like that consensual processing I think that's really important <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and how does that connect with um, what's the question how does it connect with that urgency connect with um, and like how in ways of like how we make a living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess for me, it's like because right now I'm making like my money comes from the teaching. So um, thinking about like I feel like I, I'm thinking a lot just about like how art is taught in the schools and like a lot of questions that come up for me from students is like, you know, how do we like how do we make money as an artist, you know, or like, why aren't you bringing gallerists and curators mm. to come visit our studios? Um, I had a, a grad student who's a TA who like came to um, Otis, I'm, Otis and on the website, um, it says like 90% of our graduates um, get jobs, but like it's mostly referring to people in like comm arts or digital media and like furniture making and within fine arts, it's not like that doesn't happen. So I, I'm like oftentimes kind of like, what do I tell um, my students, um, you know, if like, mm. right, you might you know. get a job as a barista or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, with your MFA. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. I was rejected a lot of barista jobs. Oh, Because <laughs> I was overqualified, whatever that means. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Do you think that um, it's, it can be difficult for in for students to find a way for those urgencies to be a part of their practice? 
what's urgent to them and what matters seems to be a sort of ocean between that and the possibility of a job. Like, how could I get a job addressing those issues? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, like, it depends on, like, who's teaching. I don't know, like, because, like, there's some, I guess, models or people teaching where it's, like, trying to fit within the existing model of like what the art world and like the kind of like predetermined you know road which is like you make work and you find a gallery and then you sell work you know and you get a museum show and so there's some teaching that's like focused around that um maybe more like a finishing type school to like get your work ready for that and then there's like other teachers like myself who are interested in maybe what you're talking about and like trying to maybe create different uh, alternatives to a different like art world or ways of making art. And I think like that's been going on for for a while and there are um, organizations and groups and collectives who are doing that and have been doing that. Um, So yeah, I don't know if I... Mm. It's all very complex. I feel like, you know, we're all teachers here, we're all instructors in our, in a, professionally, but also probably in our own ways. And for me, it's so much about opening up students, allowing them to trust and kind of helping them harden on their way out, you know, because there's so many different possibilities in the art space for students to participate or be or, you know, professionals. But in regards to the um, question at hand, so this is now talking, I, I think it's a really interesting and fundamental question, but there's a way in which I don't connect to the question because I feel like I've compartmentalized my life so much now in that teaching is my day gig and I feel very privileged in that space to have that as a possibility. But it's almost like my art practice runs alongside on a different track and it speeds up and slows down in different places and this and and the survival or the the connection to urgency is so dependent on so many other factors so for me i guess my most urgent thing and i say i'm making air quotes around the word urgent because i feel like i'm surrounded by urgency in the world and my art is less about urgency and it's more about right now trying to find ways to make larger projects, you know, to employ more people, to have collaborators, to have a more kind of professionalized space for my production. And that is just a slog, Mm. you know. But those aren't the, but I think that's part of the idea of urgencies. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a political urgency. It's about finding a way to make your way in the world and exactly how you said, these are the things that are urgent. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just a clarification that it's, that that urgencies can have many more dimensions to it. I usually work in this space, like I try to quadrant my mind. So I have urgent and important in the upper left in my mind. And then I have important, not urgent in the upper right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I have urgent, not important in the lower left. And then I have neither urgent nor important in the right. (laughs) So I try to only work in important and not urgent space. Urgent is like get my windshield fixed, pay my taxes. It really is like clutter to me. And I try to just focus on important. So I think it's almost more like a philosophical space 
or something that I'm having a hard time stepping into, but I want to hear from you guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like, uh, this is Todd Gray. I'd like to piggyback on that because <clears throat> I've been a practicing artist for 40 years and I left my professorship at Cal State Long Beach uh, four years ago, five years, four or five, yeah, about four years ago, because I wanted to make sure I had enough energy for this last part phase of my life to really create a strong studio practice. And so that was my, my focus, and how do I do that? Fortunately, in the last four years, um, I've been, the work has been recognized, and there is a platform for my work, and I hadn't had a, a professional gallery since the 90s, and now I have two, now I have a, more than one gallery. And so now what is happening is managing the workflow there's there's an urgency of like staffing a studio and how do I maintain my creative output and um, and flow when I'm interrupted and I'm I have a tendency to micromanage and how do I know when to step back and let people do their thing so this becomes part of the urgency so that I can be more effective and I can have more time. So I quote unquote have the luxury of time, but a lot of that time is being filled um, in the day to day um, or organizing a, a studio with more people because there's more demand to show the work and, and so forth. So that's one part, one urgency. The other urgency is that my work is really predicated on an urgency that I became aware of in grad school, which is that my mind has been colonized and that I have been, uh, as, a, as, a, as a man of color, as an African-American, that I had no idea that my mind was colonized. And that became paramount uh, ground, uh, conceptual foundation and framework of, of my work. And then I, it's been well received. However, the, those that I would like to have discourse with don't come to museums and galleries. Mm -hmm. And so now the question is, how do I reach out and how do I connect and how do I create dialogues with folks who are of, who have had, who have colonized minds, have no idea and so forth. Have, uh, and that's now urgent. And how do I not make the work didactic, mm -hmm. keep its conceptual vigor, uh, yet be able to open up and have dialogues with a variety of people. So that's another urgency. So that's the conceptual, and that's the urgency that's placed on the artwork, mm -hmm. and then the more practical of how do I organize a professional you know, studio that won't interfere with my creative process. Mm. Yeah, I think my urgencies are related to uh, maybe all of what you, what you mentioned. But I wanted to um, mention that, like you were saying, different times, I'm Gelare, by the way, uh, depending on where you are in life, I think the meaning and the intensity of the urgency uh, are very different. So there was a time that the urgency for me was literally to get a job under the table and pay the bills and uh, be able to ground myself by getting a visa and staying and, you know, being in this precarious place where you don't even know where you're going to be in the next three or five years. So in that space, having a practice had a totally different meaning. The practice was for me to just survive. Mm -hmm. um, but then now looking back, you know, my 
my priorities, urgencies have shifted because of uh, having been able to put that behind me. And now I'm more engaged in my practice and teaching. Um, but I think what I have liked um, to have throughout, even when I was, you know, having those, you know, very like life changing um, major obstacles or priorities to deal with in addition to an art practice was to be able to have a conversation and actually reflect back on what is an artistic practice, um, how does this system, how is this sustained, where are the sources of funding, uh, what kind of practice do I want to pursue as opposed to following the alleged formula of success. So I think that to me right now looking around Los Angeles and the larger art world and the world um, it's important for me to be able to have those conversations and talk about um, what kind of practice do I want to sustain or where do I want to say yes, where do I want to say no. Mm -hmm. um, and where and that ties back to, again, spaces where you can have a practice that's more experimental and conceptual and doesn't need to be didactic. So having a multiplicity and a heterogeneity of practicing and what that means, especially as an artist of color and not feeling the burden and the pressure of having to fit within a formula and like behave a certain way mm -hmm. is for me yeah. very important. Basically having some air to breathe. Mm. Yeah, this is now and I, I just want to say that I want to echo what you're saying, but also just I have no judgment about any artist, what they do to survive. Because it's such a slog, you know, to, you know, I like now I've, I've already said I'm in a really privileged position to have a full-time teaching gig, which is my day gig. And, but, you know, along the way, there's been so many different possibilities and scenarios that have to do with surviving in order to kind of make the work or to stay focused on the work or to just be able to, um, you know, say I'm a practicing artist essentially you know and to stay with that um, so that seems you know like a space that I just want to respect all the artists who are doing whatever they have to do to make it work sure. know, yeah, I guess sure. yeah yeah sure yeah. I mean do you think that the pressure it feels that some of the pressures that I see with artists um, I think has to do with working sort of so many different hats and so many different venues mm -hmm. um, in order to sustain a practice. So if you're within an academic setting, you can't show at a hair salon mm -hmm. because that doesn't necessarily count within that larger, that that's not official mainstream. Mm. And so what I would working with a lot of students is, is to try and the self-care is needed because I feel like you, you have to do multiple things. If the urgency is to get gallery representation and to show at a mainstream institution, I agree. Mm -hmm. More power to you on that. The flip side is there's also students that, that are, and artists are trying to do multiple fronts. And that that's what I feel can be incredibly taxing um, because you realize that the urgencies that are, are multiple and require multiple forms, multiple strategies, multiple ways of working. And that's what's exhausting. Just to hold, Todd, the two things that you've talked about, intention, I mean, they're intention, and then that to me is just a, a very taxing. Is it like the idea of the artist 
maybe. I mean, when I introduce myself, I always say, like, I guess I'm an artist, you know, but, like, thinking about, like, what an artist is and, like, the expectations of, you know, what, and talking about, like, decolonizing one's kind of mind and, like, the idea of the artist and what it's attached to, where does it come from, you know, and there's, like, this myth of this artist and the artist has to, you know, follow this path and has to be making their work and, like, working as a barista is not, like, an artist, you know, it's, like, deviation from the path or something. I don't know, like, maybe there's, like, a rethinking of what an artist is. Yeah, and I think that's why another thing I'm really interested in is is actually experience sharing because we're all in our space trying to figure this out. And, again, there's no guidebook or a website where you go and you have your – there's no Quora for artists where you ask, like, then how do I deal with the gallerist or, like, how do I – you know, like, how do I make decisions when, like, a collector approaches me or I don't even know if that's a scenario. But um, so that's why I'm interested in artists who write, for example, as one avenue of because then because you look at an artist's career and then you read the writing or autobiography or an interview and it gives you a completely different image of how this person made a living or how this person survived. Mm -hmm. And it's completely refreshing to see that that's not what I had in mind or like that's not the image of the artist that I had perceived as a fan or a viewer or a critic or whoever but when you read their words or when you talk to them it's a completely uh, new perspective on how they make a living or how they have arrived where they have arrived or what went they through or are they even happy because mm -hmm. the projected image is something and the lived experience is completely different. Yeah this is Todd. Um, when I got out of grad school, when I got out of CalArts in 89, I came out with a little bit of heat and I was acquired, my work was acquired with a couple of museums within two years and then I got gallery representation at uh, uh, Shoshana Wayne really immediately and they had Anselm Kiefer and Yoko Ono and so on. So I was like the tiny tadpole on the roster. My first show was a group show and it was well received, things got uh, collected. Second show was a solo show. Nothing was collected, mm. even though I had reviews and uh, LA Times Sunday piece and all this stuff. And then phone calls mysteriously stopped getting answered. Mm. And I felt really uneasy, and I, that's when I said, you know what, I turned my back to the whole gallery system after that. And I only showed in nonprofits and in institutions, alternative spaces, because all of my Marxist education is <laughs> saying, screw that whole system. Mm -hmm. But then when I wanted to get out and retire, I'm 65 years old, so now I'm entering the autumn phase of my life. And I said, you know, I really want to have a studio practice. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, that sustains itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I made that decision to pursue that and went after, you know, knocked on doors and so forth and so on. So now my attitude's quite different. But in that time period, that whole, I felt a bit guilty mm -hmm. about selling work, about b having privilege, mm -hmm. especially as a person of color. And I had to go through, and sometimes I still manage. Like I'm, it, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to share the successes that I've had in the last couple of years. Imposter syndrome. It's just, <laughs> I mean, I own it, but I don't like telling yeah. other artists, sure. even though they may know. Because yeah. I feel like I'm, it's, it's Well, you don't want to seem weird. like an a-hole, yeah. and that's, you know, to your credit. But I'm curious about how you work through your process in terms of, like, the colonized mind, and about, I'm interested in, about your journey, like, if there was a point that you 
sort of looked at yourself and made that sort of distinction mm. and then kind of how where you are at, where you're at in your process with that well no uh, that's a good question because it wasn't a choice it wasn't a choice yeah it was I had no choice because it was such a epiphany su such a mind-blowing experience to realize the choices I've made in my life were predicated on how whiteness defines me as a subject in this culture. And I had no idea that I was making choices based on whiteness. I had no idea that I had an inferiority complex because of whiteness and, and, and how culture defines a, uh, a black man and so forth until I had read Frantz Fanon and until I had read Du Bois and James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and Bell Hooks and, blah, and all these important theorists. And then that bomb came off of my head. And that's when I decided I wanted to teach because, wow, theory actually told me something how my mind had, had, had been co-opted. And I had no idea it had been co-opted. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to teach. And that's when I went into that. And then I said, I'm not only going to teach, I'm going to make that part of the work because that's so important. And then uh, various uh, iterations of work has, has followed. And it's changed. It's gotten more subtle. It was it was photo text piece. <laughs> you know, we are colonized. Mm -hmm. Franz Fanon says <laughs> with a photograph. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. 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 Declaration. <laughs> Statement of declaration. Yeah. And then later, and then the, and later on, more as iterations and boredom and and process and practice went, it, it became more sublimated in the work and became the the, the conceptual framework. Um, and then um, and now as I'm showing at Pomona College Museum of Art, um, we have a really extensive programming. And I show up at the museum about three times a month to talk to people and have conversations and be available. But having all the program really talk, the programming, talk about mental colonization, self-care, eating right, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so I've noticed that the agency that I have as an artist is to really get involved with the programming too and to tell those institutions to reach out so that we can actually have discussions or play music. And then, well, why is this music along with this art exhibit and what's and to, have, to open up multiple discussions because that's what I found is I cannot just rely on the artwork alone to create, to open people's heads to uh, what I'd like to be discussed. I want to just flag something you said, which is, it was a mistake. You said, and museums collected me, I mean my art. And I was thinking about, I kind of hung on that, this idea that as artists, you know, and we get kind of pulled apart in different ways, you know, emotionally, we connect with our work so much and in face of the institution or different institutions that we interface with, that idea of, you know, giving ourselves away or selling ourselves or, you know, and also I'm, I'm totally willing to sell out if anyone's listening. If you want to buy, I'm, I'm there to sell out. But um, kidding, not kidding. But was thinking about sort of that space of self-care and how in the forefront it is now in terms of people's works, you know, creating spaces to relax, creating uh, sort of spaces to express yourself or, or spaces for the public to come in and express themselves. And I think, you know, even though I try to avoid sort of locating trends in art, I think that it is really at the forefront right now, this idea of self-care for community or for artists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and why? Well, I guess it's just because, you know, people are run ragged, you know, in the survival game. I think, you know, when I was younger, most of my time was spent sort of saying yes to things and doing things and pushing myself. And now I find my struggles more about finding open space mm -hmm. to kind of sit inside of, you know. I think I, you heard this reticence about being collected by a museum early is that I thought I had now entered the Emerald City. I had gotten past the gate and my life was set. And that was nothing further from the, the truth. It was just a couple of institutions now have pieces of mine that goes on a wall, and mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. And my students, I remember, when I shared with them, I was in this, I was in a MOCA collection, LACMA collection, early on. They said, wow, how did it feel? And I said, well, you know, I, the first show, I went in, and it, I was jazzed for about five minutes, and then after that, it was the piece on a white wall. Mm -hmm. And that was that. And I said, it didn't equal the extreme pleasure I got when I saw the piece in my studio, and I said, oh, damn. That shit is happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, nothing has equaled that. And I said, you know what? That's what we all have available is that moment of recognition that mm -hmm. the work is singing. And, that hap and I said, nothing has equaled me to this day when it's in my wall, in my studio, and I recognize it. And it doesn't matter how much validation, peer validation, institutional validation I get. Nothing has equaled the high that I get in the studio. And I told everybody, that's what, you ha that's what we all have. That's what we have. Everything else is something else. Yeah, that's what's scarce, I think. I think those moments, this is Gellare again, those moments where you're, it's you and the work and this moment of peace or happy, like actual happiness, mm -hmm. without having to share it with anyone or project it or brag about it or put in an application or like put a price on it. I think those are, I think those moments are, they're a non-commodified self-care moment. Those are precious and I think those are radical moments. I mean, it might sound like a spread, stretch, but I think everything in this um, market economy, especially with social media, which is a whole can of worms that we may or may not open today, um, I think everything is so kind of projected and uh, relying on like a future tense of what this is going to look like or who's going to look at it. So it's like the economy of gazes that those moments are more and more scarce, especially for young artists like myself, there's always this pressure that this is going to be, it's almost like a movie in the making as opposed to like looking at a beautiful sunset. Mm -hmm. And you know, I might be romanticizing this and you know, art has been commercial for the longest time. It's not like a new phenomenon, but I think those are things that I'm looking for, in search of more and more. Um, and that requires an investment of time, but also an attention being, you know, having slept well or, you know, having mm. a space where you feel comfortable. And those things are getting really hard to find for me. And that ties to the economy, of course, but also there's a non-monetary economy that's also having a role in that. Are you talking about like the moments you have with your work? Yeah, are, with yeah. like moments of um, relative calm and peace without the noise and the anxiety of where this is going or how this is going to be projecting into a you know, a future application where I can mm -hmm. get funding or what does my gallerist think or what does my neighbor think or, you know, X and Y and Z. Just mm -hmm. this moment or like, is it good enough for a critic to write about? You know, like everything gets um, immediately translated into some sort of currency, I think, for a lot of us under yeah. these pressures. And just to have that moment of 
intimacy and joy of making something that may go out in the world, but this moment that you feel like the work has, is done or mm -hmm. like you're editing something and it's the last cut, exporting your file. This mm -hmm. is looking good mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like an awareness? I mean, and like awareness. those moments are being mm -hmm. very present in that moment rather than reflecting back or projecting. Yeah, and pleasure. Because uh -huh. at the end, yeah. we, I think I became, became is, is kind of a strange word, but I guess I'm an artist because I don't want to be a banker or I'm an artist because I don't want to be a real estate agent. So it's nice to not have to um, talk about how fancy this floor is the way that I talk about how awesome my work is, you know, like mm -hmm. it's good not to have to always do that. And I think those moments are rather freer moments where you really take joy in making art and it's fun. Do you have like a kind of like your ideal kind of place where the art, like is it for you and, you, and for your friends to share? And like, do you think it, there's like a place that it can exist in outside of like how the art world kind of functions? I mean, that I think ties to the second question that Maria had for us. I mean, I think, yeah, one thing I would love to have more of uh, is artist-run spaces and independent spaces that in this city, are it's getting harder and harder to sustain, to open, to, to show at because... Because of money. Because of money, obviously. And, you know, and yeah, and I, I've never run a space, but I know that they need money to sustain themselves or something. Mm -hmm. um, and hence, you know, the closing one after another of spaces mm -hmm. in L.A., but also elsewhere. It's not just an L.A. problem. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, hanging out at an opening where you feel like a connection to people and it's less about how this is going to blow tomorrow on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And it's more about this is a fun time. We're yeah. talking, looking right. at art, sharing a drink. I think those things still exist, but I think, they're, again, they're becoming more scarce. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I just keep thinking, this is Jennifer, thinking about just like art, like how art functions within like the art world as it is now. Is it like, it's, it's like a continual form of validation. You know, like everything is, and like needing that validation to like continue on. Um, and like that's the thing that always gets me so like upset and depressed because I get, I get, I feed into that and then like I don't get the award, I don't get the write up, and then I get so depressed and then feel like my, my work is not valid in some way and then kind of going off what you were saying Todd about like seeing your work in like a museum like I think I like always think or have this hope that having my work being in a museum or some kind of institution means that it's changing the system somehow mm. like it's smuggling something in to change the system but then it's like not you know and that's like the disappointment for me you know like because I want to like change systems ultimately mm. But it's not black and white, I'm Gilare again. It, you know, it might have, it might change in one way or another, like with one work, not all the work in this moment, not that moment. I think those things are very context specific. And as artists, we're not always aware of how the, how the work is functioning on its own or in an institution or outside yeah. of an institution. But um, right. you've or smuggled some the... stuff in museums that have changed things, I'm sure. <laughs> But maybe or not even all if of it's it. The product that changes things. It might be the relationships that you right. have on the way, or right. you know, I think about like product and process and art almost as different things. And the art is more exists in my mind, mm -hmm. and then it can exist in the product or it can exist in the process. And 
you know, ideally it's all the same thing, but oftentimes the product or the snapshot of the process, the thing that gets created, you know, may or may not have the vibrancy that you have in the way that you're thinking about it, you know, and so there's something I think um, to be said about these kind of frameworks and structures that have been built up around this idea of being an artist mm -hmm. that, um, you know, can function in a very lopsided way in terms of moving the project forward, you know, the project of being an artist. And I think about the idea of artist. I like the label of artist because it's, I have a lot of lateral movement. You know, right now I'm working on designing a new speculum and that's a medical object, <laughs> mm. you know, and I'm designing it as an artist. And I think that the label of artist is just so open for me, mm -hmm. you know, personally. Um, and I think primarily because I've largely existed outside of what are considered the pathways for a successful artist, <laughs> mm. you know, and I think that's where the lateral movement comes, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I when I got out of when I got out of school BFA in 1979, I got my BFA at CalArts. I before that I was a music photographer, so I just went right back into the music business, shooting album covers, and that would fund me mm -hmm. so that I could take a month or six weeks off. An album cover could pay the rent for two months, and then I could take time off and do my work. So that's how I did. I exhibited and didn't have to teach or anything because I I. I had a commercial photo business, but then um, I, as hardcore gangster rap came in and um, my relationships with subjects, them, basically them seeing me as a bourgeois black, mm. and there was a lot of disrespect and I said, oh man, I, it's time for me to get out of this game and move on. And that's when I sought full-time teaching and so forth. So um, I'm, as time changes, then the the needs. Or wait, I'm losing my train of thought. I'm, I'm, why did I share this story? The uh, constant, yeah, yeah, like the constant uh -huh. of you being an artist seems to be the through line here, right? That you took on these different kind of ways of surviving. Yeah, and and but then I really kept them separate, mm -hmm. like church and state. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think t I think times have changed that a young person doesn't have to do that. It's mm -hmm. because art has gotten to the point where we see it's all context. The same piece here in this arena is commercial. You take it out, you put it in another arena, and now it's, and now it's fine art. Mm -hmm. you know? So the fluidity of, of work and the porousness of, of the institutions defines or, or helps not fix the definition of mm -hmm. an object or a thing. But I think I was just trying to say how I was able to survive and make work and that was through these commercial means. But I didn't, I was always conflicted. Am I an artist? Am I, mm. you know, mm. and it, uh, because I am living comfortably. And I thought that, I bought that whole notion that you're mm. supposed sure. to suffer, you're supposed to be barely above the poverty line, and all this, you know, this very ancient notion. And it wasn't until many, many, many years later when I read Air Guitar by Dave Hickey, and he, there was this quote that I always repeat, the, uh, the biggest, compliment you can give an artist is not to say you like it, but to buy the work. 
because that means you are helping that artist sustain their practice. Mm. And that's when I read that, I said, damn, I'm not gonna have any more issues than about selling work <laughs> because that's the final, that, that is saying something. Yeah, I'm gonna help you sustain your practice. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna buy the work. Absolutely. Yeah. But also besides buying, this is Gilare again, um, I think the, for example, the wage conversation, the artist wage labor was very crucial. Like if it was one of, I think it was one of the most impactful open dialogues that we've had as artists. The fact that, yes, um, it's important to buy the work, but also artists do a lot of labor that goes uncompensated. And we have no language. We used to have no language like publicly to even ask for that. But I think even the tiny little honorarium that we get by like showing in a group show at a nonprofit, I think those things add up. And I think those are part of the sustaining of a practice, whether or not you sell. Mm -hmm. And like the selling of work is also such a complicated thing. Like who, who, I'm always like, who's buying work? Like who has the money to buy work? And how do they make the decisions to buy work? And that's like so entangled with like, you know, who you are and like, you know, if you, your name is something and like, and it becomes like, a, it feels like a collecting of the person rather than the actual work and like, like how does that system work and like, I don't know, I'm really interested in ideas of scrooging. <laughs> Scrooging, Operation Scrooge, Scrooging. <laughs> You've heard me talk about this. I, I'm, I'm unaware. Scrooging, okay, so, okay. So Scrooging is this idea that the only reason, or the main reason that someone holds on to resources and power is unacknowledged trauma. So like, so Scrooging is like, the, you know, taking from the story of like Ebenezer Scrooge, who's like, you know, transformed into a kinder, gentler man through the visitations of ghosts from his past, present, future. And so this was, this was started with this uh, group uh, called the Legion of Hackers for the Revolution. So it was originally like a hacking, conning kind of group, and it was right after the elections. And so it's like taking, I know I'm kind of talking fast, but like, taking the principles of the revolution, which is like always operate from a place of abundance. Once you're operating from a place of abundance, then you can choose the most expansive route, which is basically giving the most options to the greatest number of people. And so, and it's based also on this movie, Brothers Bloom, which is about these two con brothers who, um, who one of the, the oldest brother defines the greatest con is one where everyone involved gets what they want, including the target of the con. So it's also like this idea of like inception. So it's like this, like a conning hacking mission to like pick like a target and then you scrooge the person by like kind of like acknowledge like bringing up their past traumas and then giving them uh tools to lovingly acknowledge the trauma and then once they that trauma is acknowledged and they'll just like let go of their hold of like money and power and then we just like yeah so like the go the ghosts were mm -hmm. You know, essentially, yeah. the trauma that the ghosts were causing Scrooge allowed him to come to terms mm. with his trauma and then be generous. Is that yeah, yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Like once that person kind of lovingly kind of befriends and acknowledges Jennifer their trauma. Jennifer Moon, you're one of my favorite warm holes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we should do conning Operation Scrooge missions. <laughs> so much fun. Scrooge. Wow. Win, win, win. I got a list of my Scroogers. Because I was thinking, target. like, how does this happen? Do they psychoanalyze the person? Well, but no, it to... needs to come from like a 
Yeah, well, it's, it's like a con mission. So we have, you know, have a lot of recon, a lot of like digging into their past, and you set up like people to play certain parts in their lives to like, you know, get their trust. And is that like people who work in development? Is that what they do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of, but like it's you know you screwed it so overlap. that it's towards like revolution and abundance for all. Mm. <laughs> I mean, there's ethical issues, obviously, with it. <laughs> <laughs> and consensual ethics. Yes. <laughs> I like the idea of scrooging because then it it has a uh, it's all organized around a multiplicity. Like, so you're creating multiple opportunities for all these different people involved into that, even the person who's getting scrooged. Yeah. And I like that's a strategy, mm -hmm. right? That's that's a strategy for making a living. And also, it's a strategy that like it doesn't have to be this huge production, but it's kind of right. how I think about how I interact and talk to people in general. You know, like when we talked earlier now about like uh, teaching and like bringing like how to smuggle in conversations about trauma and like feelings and difficult emotions. Like I approach it in like a scrooging kind of way. Perhaps you can offer up another question. <laughs> ah. Should we touch pinkies again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pinkies. Uh. Most of us have went into teaching as the foundation for making a living, and you all have expressed uh, reservations about the notion of the artist and have reconfigured or rethought and actively rethought those ideas that we inherit from art historians like myself that do it every semester, replay those. I try to break apart those myths. To go into teaching, do you, how do you, do you see that as a way to affect change, to smuggle in those ideas? Because like, um, all of us opted to go into that. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily, it, I don't think any of us said that someday I'm gonna be a professor or I'm gonna be an art teacher. And that for me is a really interesting question is how we all end up into that space where I think most of us probably believed early on, and still to this day I feel like I don't necessarily belong in that space. And I think through microaggressions it's constantly, I'm reminded. So I'm just curious as to one, how you've rethought that and why you entered into that arena. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how have you rethought the idea of the artist in order to maybe go back to what you were saying, Todd, about making, like to feel it's an ethical decision. Like I, as an art historian, my entire field is based on stealing mm. and coming out of the Enlightenment project and colonialism and imperialism and capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like you can't, you can't build an art history program without those things. Mm. And so I, th I always feel like that that's how I ended up there or in this position is a really strange thing because on paper that doesn't make any sense. I should leave that and let it decay but for so how did you mm -hmm. step into that role of the artist the notion of the artist and then why teaching well I have a pretty clear trajectory so I could just tell my story this is now I came um, into being an artist from a really inspired place like I felt almost as if I was being talked to by aliens or or God or some, I think I was having actually a psychotic break, to be honest, because I was having this experience of like hearing voices outside of myself and that kind of thing. 
And now when I look at it in retrospect, I think I was having some kind of psychotic break. But at the time, I was very accepting of this weird, you know, position in between the worlds. And so I started performing from that space of feeling like there was something that I needed to transmit to people or my community or people who were around me that could not be expressed in other ways, right, um, other than through performance. And so, or through action or, you know, some kind of body poetics or dreamlike act activities. So that's where I started as an artist, but, you know, it's probably no big surprise that the kind of work I do is not necessarily, you know, uh, has a really strong place in the market in general terms. And so I was working with um, Coco Fusco. We were doing a tour a performance tour and you know she's the ultimate professional ultimate academic and um, she had just sort of sat me down and had a talking to me and said what are you planning to do I mean the people at the height of your career are making or the heart the, the people at the height of what you're doing are making X amount of money you know she had all the figures mm. this is what people are making this is the most you're gonna make you need to do something where you get health insurance Mm. You have a lot to give to people. Why don't you go back to school? So I'd already been a practicing artist for about 15 years when I went to um, graduate school to get my degree at the San Francisco Art Institute. Mm -hmm. And because I'd already been a practicing artist, you know, I think that that's what really helped me get mm -hmm. into teaching and get a gig, right? Get a teaching gig. But it took me about 10 years before I even felt like I was a good ish teacher <laughs> like it's such a process right of learning and now I feel like my role is very much more about creating um, not to be this sounds so cheesy but I feel like creating community is a really big part of my teaching role now mm -hmm. which is about about creating a space where we could all learn from each other and you know I of course try to bring any expertise I have to my students to help them leverage their lives, you know, to help them, you know, have a little bit more information or give them perspective or give them knowledge or show them things. But they equally show me a lot of things. And so I really feel that there's a back and forth between me and my students. And now my teaching is really alongside my practice because I get to have all these great conversations with young artists. Mm. And so um, I think that it's gone from being like a kind of mode of survival to being, you know, a way, a way forward. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that for me is sort of the path I've taken. I went from being cuckoo to being Coco. <laughs> yeah, from Cuckoo to Coco to, well, just, you know, being, uh, you know, having, yeah, right. having <laughs> professional morals, right. let's say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for me, it's, I'm pretty new, I have to say. I'm not even at a stable teaching position, but I think mm -hmm. I did say that I'm going to be a professor because, um, because one, I love teaching, a lot of people do, but two, I think um, having chosen, I mean, I think I, I make a lot of conscious decisions about my work that then enacts a certain, you know, 
presence in the art world. It's received in a specific way. Um, and I think part of that, I did make the conscious decision that I don't want to rely on my artwork as a source of income at some point in my life. That doesn't mean that I did a lot of fancy jobs. You know, I had all kinds of jobs whenever they didn't reject me, you know, from corporate nine to five cubicle jobs to other things, teaching middle school. Um, so that was one thing. I needed to have an income, however small, that didn't come from the sales of my work because one, I was not making the kind of work that would sell easily. And two, um, I didn't want to be under that kind of pressure. So that was something that I make, make a decision about, partly probably out of um, circumstances that I was living in, but then at some point it became something that I respected in my practice. Um, and then I think the other thing is I do think about my practice in general, not just as art practice. There's a practice and that practice has different um, aspects to it. One is writing, one is the practice or art practice and the other one is teaching and I see the three of them really feeding off each other maybe in a way that only serves me hopefully it also serves my students at least but um, it it I feel a little um, suffocated when I'm just pinned down as one thing that's why I'm not an expert on anything mm -hmm. uh, but I do multiple things and I think Having an outlet such as writing, it allowed for a lot more openness in my practice. And then um, teaching is a way for me to be constantly looking back at how I was taught um, and how to undo parts of that or how to share that experience with the students that, you know, this is my trajectory and these are the things that educated me in or outside of the institution. And these might be resources that you have access to, but you don't look at themselves as a source of learning. Um, so I think it's, it's a way of looking back at my practice and my trajectory, but also putting that in the world among my small group of students, however, um, and for that also to um, do what it's supposed to do in the world, you know, in parallel to my work or maybe in contrast to my work or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yeah, this is Todd. When I uh, realized in my commercial work I was only getting um, assignments from magazines, record companies, other things, uh, for I, I was only allowed to shoot black subjects. Mm. And that's when I realized, oh, there's apartheid. There's an apartheid system here. Mm. And then I looked around, and in the early civil rights movement, the way to the middle class or what have you was teaching. And so there's a long history of black teachers and so I realized, oh, I've got to see how, I, I've got to take note of that. Mm -hmm. So I uh, went and got my graduate degree also to have that option because I, ha, 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 thought that there weren't those kind of restrictions in academia. Um, and I was able to be um, a, what, a freeway flyer teaching at Art Center in the morning, UCLA in the afternoon, and Otis at night, mm -hmm. you know, in one day. Wow. And you eat in the car. Mm -hmm. as you're driving on the freeway. So I did that for a while until I, was, uh, I got enough uh, uh, experience on my resume that I was able to get a tenure track job. But why did I want to teach besides the, the financial um, security? 
Um, also, I wanted to be in an endeavor that was intellectually stimulating because if I'm not in the st studio, I want to be talking about art. I want to be engaging. I want my mind to be there. And then also, my experience with Alan Sakula at CalArts, mm. um, he, I, I had no idea that, uh, of myself that I had lower self-worth until I was reading all of the, these theoretical books, texts, and authors that Alan turned me on to. And I had no idea that art and just reading books and so forth could make you self-aware. Mm -hmm. And I became self-aware and I became conscious. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be that uh, catalyst mm -hmm. to others. And I thought, oh, this is very worthy to be that catalyst in, um, as an instructor. So that's why another reason I, I went into that field. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah similar. Yeah, but I always I always feel very fraudulent in everything that I do. Like yeah, being, same. <laughs> being an artist, I was an artist because it was just like a fluke that UCLA didn't ask for like portfolios, and so I was like, I can write an essay. And I always like admired all like the the, the I went to Orange the Orange County High School, the arts or where it was housed at the high school, and so like I similar with the teaching. Like I always like I'm also very new, my first semester teaching, a full time job, and feeling very like like not like fraudulent or like not yeah so I feel like that's like my leading way into things is like feeling that I don't fit or something or feeling I'm gonna get like fired or cooked out at any moment um but it's yeah teaching is similar I mean teaching's like I don't know it's so like to have like that kind of relationship with people and, and feeling like building something like building uh, the possibilities of alternative worlds or new worlds with young people is like incredible. Um, and I learned also so much, like so humbled all the time and like um, also often traumatized <laughs> and like <laughs> anxiety every day being like, what's gonna happen today? Um, and also just interested in institutions in general. Like I feel like institutional like secrecy is gonna be like the death of us all. Something. Yeah, it's weird how institutions are us, and yet they're not us. Mm -hmm. You know, how they're people, but they're not people. Mm -hmm. That is like the most bizarre thing, I think, about the institutional space. Is it's just yeah. a set of people, but then at the same time, it's... And about like power. I mean... Superstructure or something. Yeah, I remember, like, I, I, so far at Otis, like, I've been getting a lot of support. They've been, like, really great, but I had this, like meeting with the chair where she said at one point like I'm the institution and at first like it really freaked me out I was like what the fuck is happening and then but then I was talking to Alex and Malik and they're like and Alex was like you are the institution and then I was like oh shit I am the institution but it was like I was like this resistance of like in a, a power or something and then realizing like oh no I am the institution as well which means that I actually can maneuver it, um, it, it, within the institution in a way to maybe enact change in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Institutions and Game of Thrones. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I've had different mentors over the years and some who, were, who would say, I wake up every day and I say, I'm not part of that, you know, name the school. <laughs> and, um, and that was how they functioned. And others who who embraced their role as being, you know, part of the institution as a way. But but both mentors or both both ways I think were about affecting change. Mm -hmm. right. And it's it is a kind of it's very incremental. I mean there's 
very few times, I mean, this revolution that you speak of, Jennifer, you know, it's sort of the revolution happens quickly, but that prep time is long. Yeah. Right? No, it's long. <laughs> it's very, very long. <laughs> when it happens, it's going to be fast, but, you know, I've been waiting for a long time, so... A lot of prep time yeah. for the revolution. Yeah. Stay ready yeah. so you don't have to get ready. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of um, Sarah Ahmed's um, book, um, Living a Feminist Life, and when she talks about the, uh, creating your own support systems, that that's sort of an imperative. In And I think that within, I'm wondering within institutions, if you feel that you can there are allies and um, and can you create that support network or system within that system that works or functions even slightly different? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of allies, but people are so wrapped up in their own mission in a way that it's like, it has to, it's like getting into a relationship. Everything has to line up, right? You have to be, emotionally ready, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And I think it's sort of like everyone, your missions have to sort of align or rub against each other. I've, I find it's not very often in a kind of institutional power setting, people that can actually move my interests along are usually people in power that have some kind of alignment with my mission, right? So if it, my mission is to expand diversity and inclusivity, let's say, or to you know create more scholarship within our program or something along something very straightforward like that, then you know it is it's a little bit of a crapshoot in terms of finding those holds or something where you can um, climb that or try to get people on board because everyone has their own mission. So there's a way in which. I feel, well, right now I'm in somewhat of a leadership position as the director of a program, but I don't, um, you know, I don't really have a lot of power beyond sort of the relationships with my own students in a way, but um, I feel almost as if it would be good if leaders in institutional spaces could get together with everyone and like prioritize the missions or something so that Everyone could pull on one thing and make it happen. Oh, this is the most important thing. We have all these students at risk. We need to take care of them first. And then the next thing, and then the next thing. And then if everyone can agree on those things, then I think we can move forward. But it's very much like everyone has different kinds of missions and they can group together in one way. And I don't know, I find the whole, the whole project very complicated and end up being very much about my personal relationships with people. Yeah. That's the only place I really feel like I have the power. I'd like to pick up on that from a different perspective. Please. Um, I was in this last Whitney Biennial, and so when there was a lot of protest about candors and getting them out, and then I think it was in the summer, well, there were two moves. One was the artist's letter where we signed, a bunch of us signed it saying we're, you know, he needs to step down. And then finally when Nicole Eisman made this move to remove her work and set down, down this mandate and, you know, uh, encouraged, I don't know if she encouraged, but she made that uh, move. And then I was in a small subgroup of people that I knew and we spoke privately about what this 
do we want to do that? What or what will it accomplish? Or how is this going to affect of uh, our our work having a platform, and now removing it from that platform? Will that uh, do the will that have the benefit? Will that cause a mute a mute a muting? A, 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 a muzzling of our voice mm. and because it's very complex you know and how often will we have a platform mm -hmm. a stage to communicate our ideas like this one at the at the Whitney Biennial yes. and and then where are you in your career so some of the younger cats were going like oh Jesus <laughs> you know this right. is and me I'm you know I'm 65 I'm like I'm like you know I'll, I'll just do my thing fuck it whatever it is because I'm you know, I, so my perspective is very different. So everyone has their individual ad agendas, mm -hmm. the collective agenda, mm -hmm. and then there's criticism. Yeah, Nicole can do what she's selling shit at six figures. Mm -hmm. You know, there's which there were so many different dialogues and cross yes. dialogues yeah, yeah. that it's very very difficult to parse. But it was good just having these conversations, sure. right. private it, private conversations. Because it shows you the ways in which the system treats bodies differently, you know, because it also has to do with uh, a subject position, you know, and so it just like highlights the way, the systems and like how it, yeah, and so like, you know, some people can do that because of like a lot of privileges and like to, and kind of maybe going back what you were saying about like, well, in the very beginning about like how artists have to, what they have to do to survive, they survive, you know, and mm -hmm. like, may, and maybe it's about like seeing where we have each of us are able to maneuver the most in terms of like mm -hmm. our privileges and like making moves like that. And then I also quantified my relationship with one of the key curators mm -hmm. and how this might affect her. And mm -hmm. you know, when you look back, oh, that was a biennial where that curator couldn't keep any of the artists in tow. Right. And that became, for me, that was part of the equation to weigh my decision, not only on candors, but how this might affect her. Mm -hmm. What was your kind of takeaway, or what do you? Was there any kind of thing that you took from that, besides the complexity of the relationships? I mean, was there was there was there a kind of nugget that we can all learn from in the future? Because it seemed like such an important moment, you know. Oh, it was really important, and I was really down with the first phase when we signed the letter and so forth, and the right. protests were going on. But to actually remove work late into the show, I. Uh, that didn't feel mm -hmm. right for me. Yes. Um, so I couldn't do it. I'll say one thing. There was uh, some interest by a collector, and then I did some research, and I saw that it was fucking dirty money, and it from black from blood diamonds and some other bullshit in Africa. And I told my gallerist, you mm -hmm. know, no, I, I, I uh, 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 uh. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think I would have yeah. even researched before I had had this experience okay. now. Right. So there is now I am ask. I'm actually yeah. now asking those questions mm -hmm. yes. for, for who's, who wants to buy this work. And we got to vet that person yeah. because just don't sell that shit. Mm -hmm. And one. And that's another thing. There are different galleries with different intentions. There are galleries who are there for the work and see it in relationship to art history and want to position the work. And there are other galleries out there that want to sell whoever has the money to put it on the table. So one, as an artist, such an if you go in there, you need to be cognizant of that. It's such an interesting philosophical question because, you know, I can, of course, think about it philosophically because my work doesn't really sell in that way. So, you know, it's really only philosophical for me. <laughs> but, you know, this idea that, you know, money being clean or money being dirty, um, who you get in bed with, is it important, is it not important? 
does the art actually change that that person's re, that person's identity? You know, so some people say, well, this company is buying this particular art because they want to help clean up their own identity or their own marks, right? But then, is that the case, or is the art sucking that dirty money out of the world and giving it to the artist to create? Like, oh, there's so many like different... Like a scrooging way. That's right. both of, It can't be both yeah. at the it's same really time. It doesn't need to be one or the Where's other. Where's the power line? Yeah, it is you know? both. It is, yeah, both. Yeah. I agree with it overlaps. Yeah. I don't think there's such a thing as no agenda. There's always an agenda. It doesn't mean that it's always, like, malignant, you know. There's always an agenda when there's money and investment at play. But um, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Like, mm -hmm. it could be that the money is going to an artist who goes out in the world and does something amazing. At the same time, it's covering up, like, some really problematic politics of... You know, someone. It's giving art a lot of power, though. It does like have a lot of power. The, yeah. the, the idea that art could somehow change the reputation of an oil company Absolutely. or something but like it, that through absolutely. its existence. The media and perception, yeah. Yeah. But I, I also. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it might like, not affect are change, but it, it can that affect company still? Like, yeah, perception. Yeah. That's, I mean, it might or, not affect any change. No. Yeah. It might, it might not have any real change, but it changes perception. Mm -hmm. Or I mean, it's the reverse, it changes the perception of the artist. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there are countries with state departments, you know, are like literally getting together, talking about how much money goes into funding exhibitions, institutions that cover up their human rights abuses. Right. Like, yeah. it's right. like, it's not Biennials. even at a small scale, it's at the level of the government of like 50 countries, you know. Yeah. So I do think, and I think it's important to acknowledge that power and be able to use it as leverage whenever you can, if you have the drive to push against institutions or like bring change, or at least bring dialogue, right. um, open up space for dialogue. Mm -hmm. And look how a representation of, of people of color, specifically representation of black people, is like, look, we're, we're in films, we're doing this, we're doing that, all of these uh, components that represents um, justice and forward thinking. But yeah, but what about jobs? What about healthcare? What about housing? That's the same. So representation is used as a, a signifier of progress and change, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the actual conditions remain the same, if not worse. Right. Yep. Right. So representation is bullshit. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in that way. <laughs> in that way. Yeah. It's like the. Um, and yet you got to be in the room. Yeah. yeah. You know, but, if you're right. going to affect change, you have to sit at the table. You have to be there. You have to do the work. Have, you have to be present. You know. Got to be at the table. Got to be at the yeah. table. Which is funny. That's what one of the curators at the Whitney on a private conversation mm -hmm. I had with her was saying. Hey, you know, if we're not at the table, if they, if this voice isn't there to say something, it's not heard and it's business as usual. That's mm -hmm. why it's so important to navigate those spaces and work within a system. And that that's her strategy yeah. to affect change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, this kind of criticism against Nicole in a way, it's like I think also because of her privileged position, her pulling the work, made a larger statement, you know, so I think it cuts both ways. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not, yeah. I know you weren't specifically criticized. I'm, yeah. You said some said yeah. criticism existed in the world. Oh, good. Yes. I could be a politician. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the artists or join in the conversation, visit extraonline.org or find us on Instagram. 
This series was made possible by generous support from California Arts Council, Art and Media Public. This series was made possible by generous support from California Arts Council Arts and Public Media Grant, the Michael Asher Foundation, and KCET's Artbound. Recorded at Catasonic Studios and Echo Park by Mark Wheaton, thank you to Shaolin Dub for our theme song and production assistance from Sarah Fowler and Kara Hart.